Hey world, how do you find your signal over the noise of social media and other platforms? In this episode, I talk to the CEO and founder of The Future, Chris Doe. He's also the author of A Pocket Full of Dough, a book that encapsulates over two decades of reflections and observations on entrepreneurship, philosophy, creativity, and more. We discuss how he builds his audience, how to price your creative work, and why you may want to rethink how you approach your craft. If we present something that is of value to people, we get that audience effect where people are like, whoa, Hey, somebody just posted this thing. They just shared a piece of content. Did you watch this video? I'm going to share this with my cousin, Mary, Bob, and, and Jake, and they're all going to watch this thing. And if you do such a good job at that, they'll ask you, how do I buy from you? What do you have for sale? I love the way your mind works. To get more content from The Lead Creative, please hit subscribe and share this episode with your network. Welcome to the Lead Creative Podcast, where we talk to creative industry leaders, influencers, and brands. We discuss the strategies that influence brand thinking and shape industries. Thought leaders and heads of agencies let us in on some of their thinking and insights. I'm your host, Mongye Simtati. Enjoy the show, and please share and subscribe. Chris, what a pleasure to have you on The Lead Creative. Thanks so much for making the time. It's my pleasure to be here. Chris, you're one of those people who've seen the industry evolve quite a lot. And I think to start us off, I'd like to get a sense of what you would tell 20-year-old Chris about how to build his ideas and approach the industry, having seen it evolve so much now that you're here. Oh, that's a tough one. Um, the, the biggest challenge that the 20 year old you is going to have is to, to be seen, to be recognized and to be able to have, a some kind of relationship with your prospects, with your clients and, and the people who may come to work for you. So when you, when you first graduate school or if you're preparing your portfolio, no one knows who you are. So that's always going to be the biggest challenge. Now it doesn't matter what industry you're in. I was in the motion design industry. And so I, I was lucky to be in Los Angeles at that time kind of the birthplace of what I was doing was happening and it was the epicenter. And so it was, it was fairly um, easy to, to find people who were doing that kind of work and who were interested in this field. Uh, so I think orienting yourself to where your prospects, your clients are, where it's happening will, will increase the opportunities that you get. Does social media make it easy? It makes it much, much easier because I started in 1995 yeah. Social media wasn't a thing. The internet was just version 1.0. And now it's so much easier because clients are looking for you and you have so many free platforms to publish on. In following your work, one of the things that comes up for me is that, of course, you've built a solid business um, that frees you to create, that frees you to do the kind of work that you do. At what point were you able to strike that balance, the balance between the business and the creative? I think relatively early. I think it was in just in the first two years. Once I got some, some opportunities to work on it, the projects were usually bigger than what I could do. And so I started hiring other people to help me. At first, it was just friends, friends from school, former roommates, and I got them to help. And then eventually I thought, I can get more business. Why don't I just get more of my friends to come and work with me? So one by one, I convinced them either to quit or they became dissatisfied with their jobs. So then they quit and then they joined me. And at that point, then I could do either run the business or work in the creative space and I chose to do a little bit of both. So I had to shift my role from being a person who's designing all the work to a person who's art directing and leading the team. There's this idea of the one big hit, the one piece of content that's going to move the needle and change it all for us. Um, whether you're creative, someone creating content, there's this idea that I'm going to have that one big hit, that viral piece of content um, that that brings me closer to my prospects, to my potential clients. One of the videos that you talk about that did that for you is the one on how to price a logo. Can you tell us what, in your view, looking back, makes that video perform so well after having posted it so long ago, seemingly, especially by internet standards? Yeah, so sometimes you, you create content 
and you get a feeling because it got a very um, emotionally charged in the room and you're like, I think I'm onto something here. Or at least I was having a good time. I don't know if anybody else was. And so that was um, that video that you're referencing was from a live workshop lecture thing that I was doing. And I think that was a little bit over an hour and a half long. And so I talked to my editor at that time and said, hey, grab that, cut it into a couple of pieces and let's see what happens. And I, I kind of remember the third part of it, the part where I go off the, the keynote that I'm doing and just work with the people in the room. That was the best part. And so he was cutting part one and it was released. I was all right. And he cut part two. It was, it was released. And it was OK. I'm like, where's part three? That's the part I want to see. And so finally he finishes that edit and we post it. And I'm thinking, OK, here it comes. The Internet's going to flood in and the game's going to change. And it did not. It was just slowly ticking views. And I watched it and I thought, this is a good video. So what I did back then was, and I still do this to this day, I worked on the title a little bit more, making tweaks to it, making changes, changing the thumbnail, just trying different ideas to see which would be the one that triggers people to watch it. It got up to about, um, uh, I think, twenty or 30,000 views, which is a lot for me back then. And that's when I asked my friend, uh, Mark, who was freelancing for us, then, and then to try to boost the video and to spend a few dollars a day, like $20, $30 a day to try to get it to the right audience. So he worked on that for about a month. Somewhere in that first month, it got the attention of a couple like well-known design blogs like Design Taxi and Creative Block. They shared it and said, watch this video. And I think the combination of us targeting people and, and boosting the video and the, the editors, whoever that was on those, those design blogs shared it, that then it started to go really fast. So it went from 30,000 to 60, 90, 120, 150, 180. So then it really took off and, and that was the beginning of that. So this one was, I mean, from what I'm getting, a combination of intuition in terms of you expecting it to kind of perform as well as it did and also the paid media side of it that helped it along because you believed it would work so well. Now that you've posted pieces of content so many times, are you able to tell when a piece of content is going to perform well and one that isn't? Or do you sometimes get surprised that this piece of content performs much better than I expected it to? Yeah, there's one part that in your summary that you missed, which is the tweaking of the title and the thumbnail to give it the best shot before spending money against it. Right. So you do have a feeling, and the feeling comes from if people are emotionally charged in the room, good or bad, you know it's hitting something. It's touching on a very sensitive issue. The fact that we went back and forth the whole room talking about pricing, logo, and, and what anybody charges, and it was just the right mix of people in the room who had strong opinions, who weren't afraid to share them, and that, that created that kind of special magic. And so whenever you create a piece of content, if you can stir people, you can drive joy into their heart, or you can get them excited or scared or nervous about something, they're anxious, they're angry, those emotions are what gets people to watch. Otherwise, it's very boring delivery of information. And, and today, does anything surprise us? No, not really. But we're not the kind of channel, I'm not the kind of creator who creates viral hits. Right. I just try and teach. Mm. Sometimes things stick and sometimes they don't. And what happens, and I, I'm very appreciative of this, is our content doesn't just go out of the gate and go, going supernova. Mm -hmm. It takes time for an audience to find it. So video, I'll, I'll give you an example. I sat down with um, brand branding legend Marty Neumeyer, author of several books, the, the Brand Gap, The Brand Flip, Designful Company, Zag. I, and I wanted to talk to him about branding. So we sat in our office and I interviewed him for about an hour or so. He was great, succinct, and just had funny stories, very presentable. And we posted video and it didn't really take off. It didn't take off. I was like, what is wrong with people? Do you know how, <laughs> how rare this is that I get the guy who writes the book on branding to be yeah, in front of me? Yeah. And he showed up. You know, sometimes you, you get authors that show up and they're like, nah, well, whatever. They're not feeling it. But Marty was there and he was giving you his best. Mm. And the video doesn't take off. But now I look back and that video has 400, 500,000 views. So it takes a while. And right. I, I'm very patient. I said, if I do my best to create good content, whether it's viral content or not, mm. that's my job. The second part of my job is to make it easy to find by titling it correctly and giving it a nice thumbnail. So eventually an audience shows up and they keep watching it. And so when, when videos get past three or 400,000 views over a period of time, I feel like I've done my job. And so sometimes when we create videos, I'm not clear, I'm not succinct, or I'm talking about something that very few people understand or care about. Now, you've spoken about 
that particular video, the one on pricing yeah. the logo about being a sleeper as well, where you would have had to change the title, change the thumbnail, all of these kinds of things. Um, do you do that with a lot of your content or just some pieces of content that you believe should be doing better than, than they are? Very good question. If I don't believe in it, I'm just going to let it do its thing. And if I believe in it, I'm going to keep working on it until I find the right title. Because I want to make sure if it fails, it's like I've tried my best. And sometimes the videos do fail. And it's not when I say fail, I don't really mean like I think the video is terrible. I just think wrong piece of content for the wrong audience. And that's okay. And and I'm I'm totally okay with that. So my team, and there's several contractors who work with me, they understand now how to title things because we're critiquing. And I'm like, why'd you call it like that? That doesn't make any sense. Or that was a good hook, but it's misleading because I don't really get into that. I barely touch on that, and that's the title you use. People are going to feel a little burned if they watch that video and like, wait, he didn't even talk about that. Yeah. So I'm more interested in building long-term relationships with our audience and our fans such that when they watch the videos, they're like, okay, I'm, I'm in for a good time. I'm going to learn something today, and, or there's going to be an interesting personality or something. I, do, I don't need crazy, um, crazy thumbnails of somebody jumping off a cliff or a girl running in a bikini. That, that's not my content. Yes, I'm here to yeah. teach you something. Yeah. So it's not, it's, it's not about the clickbaits to, to get no. people to watch. Yeah. Yeah. No. So but my, my team sometimes does the clickbait titles. I'm like, guys, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Why is pricing such a divisive and daunting topic? Because this video touches on something very important, something that a lot of creatives struggle with, not just yeah. creatives, but even entrepreneurs and people running businesses. Like, am I pricing correctly? Am I, do, am I, is this, you know, am I reaching the right audience with this kind of pricing? Why is this such a daunting issue? Okay, there's a couple of things. Like if I ask you, like, how many moons do we have? There'd be one answer. And, and how many suns do we have? You would say, there's only one. There's one sun, there's one moon, and there's nothing for us to argue about. But if I say, like, what is something worth? Well, it's very contextual. It's individual. It's subjective. And, and so we can have lots and lots of different opinions about it. And you put on top of that that most creatives have an unhealthy relationship with money. We've been told that money and time are tied together. They are, but not the way that you think. We think that if we, we don't work on something for very long, we shouldn't charge a lot for it. And so we've always defined our worth as how much time do I need to put into it? And it's kind of interesting because that makes it all about us. Mm. So if you hired me to design you a website and you're launching a new clothing company, if I say, well, I'm going to spend 40 days on this and I should charge you 40 grand. And you're like, well, it's not really worth that to me. <laughs> okay. And I say, well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you my time and my attention. And you're like, well, it's not worth that. Or it could be the opposite. It'd be like, what a deal. I was expecting mm. to pay yeah. 400000 and you just asked for 40K. The person's time that matters isn't yours. The person's time that matters is your prospect, your client. So if you could launch that same clothing company in 20 days or 10 days, would it be worth more or less to you? And most people would say, I pay more for a faster result. So if I focus on the result that you want and the time in which you care about, then that's the price, not what I spend on it. That's a very selfish point of view. I heard Scott Galloway, Professor G., uh, talk talk about this, Galloway. He said that the the if you want to create a billion dollar app, build a time machine. So that's like the headline. You're like, what? Build yeah. a time machine? And he said, if you if you get your kids just to watch Netflix and nothing else, you'll save something like 22 days of your life every year because of commercials and, and interruptions. So Netflix is valuable not just because of the content, but in terms of the time in which you don't spend doing something that you don't want to do. So I watch YouTube. I'm interrupted by ads all the time. Unfortunately, I think our account is a business account, so I can't turn the commercials off by paying for it. But now I realize what the value of what he's saying. Every time I watch a piece of content, I don't want those interruptions. Mm, mm. And so that's what you want to do. So you, the client, the prospect, have a goal that you want to achieve. If I can define what that is, define how valuable it is to you, and give it to you in less time, it's worth more. There's something in that that... I, I want to kind of unpack because a lot of creatives, myself included, struggle with this idea of do we price this based on units of time or do we price it based on a project? Do we price it based on the the, the success that we think it will have? Right. So if you are if you are a 
a car brand or whatever the case is, and we believe that this will sell you 20 million units, do we price it based on that or do we price it based on the time? What, how, how do clients receive either side? Because one of the fears is that if I price it based on what I believe the value is, based on what I believe the sales value is to the client, it's likely that they won't want to pay this. But you've worked with a lot of clients, you've worked with a lot of brands on either side. What's the, how, do they, how do you structure that conversation in such a way that it's, it's palatable for them as well? Yeah, it has a lot to do with you and the kinds of people that you're talking to. Mm. So let's break that down. Number one is, are you an experienced person? Do you have deep levels of expertise doing one thing so that you can spot patterns and you can connect ideas really quickly? If that's not you, let's not worry too much about like what pricing models you're going to use. You just need to work on mastering your craft. And that could take, if you you follow Malcolm Gladwell's guideline, like 10,000 hours to do that. So if you're a 19 year old person, and because my my son is trying to value price, I'm like, yeah, no, I think you're just starting. I think you need to figure out what you don't know just yet. And it's the the arrogance of youth; they think they know everything already. Yeah. So work on mastering your craft, so that so that when you say to someone, "I can deliver X result," that you actually can, and you've done it multiple times before, not just once. This is the other thing I find it's kind of interesting with the way people that their brain works. They're able to create one hit. Literally just one hit and say, yes. I know how to make viral hits now. <laughs> I'm like, do you? How about you do that three more times? And then the second time they don't get a hit. And the third time they don't get They're like, no, no, no. You can get lucky once. But if you can do it multiple times and you know you, you understand something, although you can't guarantee it, you have a pretty strong sense of like, yeah, I, I'm, the probability of me achieving that is quite high. So now you, you have a skill, you, you have confidence, and you've seen patterns, and, and you have proof that you can do this. So then the next client that you, you encounter, depending on their general budget range, you may forgo all of the different pricing techniques and just say, to work with me, it's going to cost 30 grand. I don't know what we're going to do, but I don't want to waste your time. If you don't have 30 grand, there's not much I can do for you. That's because everybody you've been talking to can't afford you and there's no point to get into project fees, uh, percentage mm. of sales, because they just can't afford anything, Okay. Uh, but then if, once you get into this middle to high pack uh, in terms of like what they can afford, then there's lots of different models that you can try. And now the, the tables have turned. They can afford way more than what you would normally charge or even can ask for. So now you have to get a little bit creative, right? And, and most people start off by charging hourly. They graduate to charging per project. And then somewhere between value-based pricing and performance-based pricing is where they're going to land. So I'll give you the final example now. There can be um, scenarios where you use all three models on one, one client. And let me explain. So a client says, I'm launching a new thing, and we have a track record of being able to sell, and I need something to help grow that. Maybe they're like asking you to build a mid-funnel design so that you can drive sales for them. You're like, okay, great. So historically speaking, the benchmark has been you've been able to sell 1,000 units a month. Uh, what, what is a target? They're like, well, 2000 would be great. So you want to 2x that. And what's the price per unit mm. that you're going to make more? What is the profit margin? Let's say they say a dollar. So if I do my job well, <clears throat> you're going to make an additional $1,000 in revenue, and we're going to work on that. Okay, so now we have to ask ourselves, what is our appetite for risk? What is the client's appetite for risk? The riskiest thing the clients can do right now is to say to you, well, uh, I'm going to pay you hourly. Just work on it. And there's no idea as to how long you work on it. Mm-hmm. You work a gazillion hours. Let's say you work 10,000 hours and that's what you charge them. And they're like, well, I was only going to make 1000 bucks. That's super risky, right? So then they're like, you know what? I want a fixed fee bid. I want to put a cap on this. You just tell me how much and then you just bill me and then you just do the job. I don't care if it takes you an hour or if it takes you 1,000 hours again. Okay, cool. And you can do that. Or you can say, look, here's what I propose. I would normally charge you $50,000, but that's a big investment considering you're only going to make $1,000 in increased revenue per month. Why don't we do some hybrid model? The client's like, tell me more. I say, look, why don't I charge you my base fee of $500? I get a percentage of every sale. Let's say I get 
of every sale. So you get some money and I get some money. And if in that process of me building this, you want to add new features and things like that, happy to do that. I'll set aside an hourly fee of $100 an hour to do that. So to do what you're asking for, I'm going to charge you 500 plus, we're going to do 15% on revenue. And anything that is outside of the scope for the period of this time, then what I will do is I'll charge you hourly for that. So we're using all three models. And the reason why we do that is because that is the most effective way to solve a complicated problem like this. Now, this brings me to something I, I, I recall from your book, um, A Pocket Full of Dough, where you mentioned that lowering your price is a temporary solution to a long-term problem. Um, and to me, it's related to what you've just said. Can you unpack what that, what that problem is that you are trying to almost put a Band-Aid over in, instead of solving it? Yeah. So you know when, when you're in war... The way that you signal to the other side that you give up, please don't hurt us, don't kill us, is you, you wave a white flag. So when you set your price, let's go back to round numbers again. Let's say that your normal project fees are $10,000 and a client comes to you and you just feel like they're not going to hire you. Something is wrong. They're like, we can't afford that. So you say, okay, well, why don't we do it for six? Then they sense that there's a lot of flexibility in this price because you just went down from 10 to six. So they're like, well, why don't we do it for three? And you say, well, I've already spent all this time. I just, I don't know when the next gig is going to come. Why don't we do it for 4500 You kind of split the difference. Mm. And they say, okay, fine. And so what's happening, is, if this is on repeat, something is going on in the marketplace where you are attracting people who I, I would consider are price buyers. They're just looking for the lowest price. This is an indication that you're poorly positioned, that you don't have top of mind awareness, and that there's something about your sales process or your body of work that's attracting the wrong kinds of clients, or that your sales process is completely broken, that you don't know how to have the money conversation, and so this is what's going to happen. So the, your temporary solution is continue to lower the price each and every single time somebody asks for it. The longer, the harder uh, solution is to sit there and say, okay, is it my positioning? Is it my sales? Is it my website, the body of work? Is it me? What is it? And then spend the time to fix that part so that you no longer attract those kinds of clients. And we look at, um, again, referencing Scott Galloway, who teaches at the NYU school. And he, he talks about the richest companies in the world, the richest people in the world sell luxury items. And they create artificial uh, constraints on supply. So there's artificial scarcity. That means that if you want to buy a Louis Vuitton bag, a Gucci thing, or... Uh, a, a pair of shoes, there's only a finite artificial supply of those things, artificial scarcity. And so you are the most scarce thing in the world. There's only one of you. There's only so much time in the day in which you can apply your surface to crap. So when you lower your price, you're signaling to them. This episode is sponsored by the digitally-led customer experience agency, Roger Wilco. For all your customer experience, digital marketing, and web development needs, go to rogerwilco.co.za or rogerwilco.co.uk. You can also download the South African CX Report and the Township CX Report directly from their website, free of charge. Don't we all love something free every now and again, especially with insights, right? Now back to the show. Something that is related to, I think, this pricing thing and the problem that, that, that you were just referring to, I think, is sales, which creatives really struggle with. And I count myself in that battle a lot with just the idea of selling and sales. How can we be creative or at least apply our creativity as well in how we sell and do so compellingly? You know, if you are detached from a process, you're able to see it much more objectively. So when you're selling yourself, it becomes very difficult because this is the work I'm going to do. And so when somebody talks to you and they're like, well, that's too expensive, you don't hear that it's too expensive. You hear like, you don't think my work is worth it. I feel personally insulted by this. And so you respond emotionally and this is not a good way to conduct sales. So if we start looking at sales uh, not as a game of uh, judgment and value to you. And we look at it as more of a way to serve other people. It will take a lot of the stress off us. So I think when, when people do sales, and, and this is for professional salespeople, it's not even just for creatives, have the mindset of servitude. 
So you'll hear me say things like stop selling, start serving. And it's really, it really does mean that. So everybody that walks in the door is not a good fit for you, nor are you a good fit for everybody. We know this already. Just like how when you walk into store and you're looking for a pair of jeans or a jacket, not every brand is right for you. And you're just here to kind of find the right fit. Imagine if every store you went into, they wouldn't let you leave until you bought the thing that you came in there for. That'd be a horrific experience. Heaven forbid that happened. But you all of a sudden treat it like that where everybody who reaches out, says hello, you're like, oh, I'm going to sell you a jacket. I know that's what you want. And no matter what, you must buy my jacket. It's the only jacket for you. That creates a lot of pressure and it creates a strange dynamic in terms of your dialogue. So if we continue on that kind of idea, when somebody comes in, we should ask them questions. Like, how may I serve you? You don't literally ask that question, but you say, what's on your mind? What's a problem that you're trying to solve? What is changing your life recently that's warranting this conversation? And then they'll tell you and then you just listen. Now, here's the thing you have to be careful of not doing is you do not want to listen with happy ears. Just think of your ear and say like, I only hear what I want to hear. No matter what the prospect says, I keep hearing they need a jacket, they love me, they need a jacket, they love me, right? And so you're sitting there, you're listening to them and you're like, oh, oh okay, I know exactly what you need. You need a jacket. They're like, uh, excuse me, I was talking about a pair of pants. And you're like, no, you weren't. You were talking about a jacket. And that's kind of how it looks. You feel pressured to close the sale, to ask for the sale and you're not really listening. So you try to listen objectively. And active listening is a difficult skill to master, especially because we're in this hyper attention deficit disorder world where tweets are getting, everything's getting shorter and shorter and, and everything's competing for time and our attention. So even when you're talking to somebody, a person who might hand you a lot of money, you can't even be present to the conversation. You're thinking about what you're going to have for lunch, what you're going to say next, uh, what is a, a clever expression or an idea that you want to share with them. You're not actually listening to them. So if you listen to them, you start serving them, and you can, you can come to the conclusion that I hear what it is that I think you need. You need X. Unfortunately, as, as much as it hurts me to say this, I don't do that or I can't do it for the price in which you want it done for. So I recommend a couple of different options. Option A, option B, option C. None of which, none of which have to do with me. Is this helpful to you? And they say, you know what? That was actually really helpful. That was very refreshing. You didn't try to sell me anything. And that's what you're trying to do. Every once in a while, you do that and you say, I know exactly what you need and it's this. Now, I'm one of many options that you can hire. If you'd like to hire me, we should talk about what that might look like. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to help them get clarity around the problem and their next steps. If you can do that, you're being very valuable. Now, when do you pitch? At what point do you pitch um, your, yourself? I've, I've heard you talk about this um, quite a lot and I follow um, some of your LinkedIn posts as well where yeah. you talk about this, where you talk about this idea of servitude, where you talk about this idea of putting a lot of balance in that bank account before you pitch, before you sell. Um, how, when do you pitch? When is the right time, especially on a place like LinkedIn where everything is so spammy, everybody's trying to pitch everyone else, Yet at the same time, we know that we should pitch for business. We should sell. When is the right time to do so? Okay, Let, let's, let's use some analogies, okay? I like to practice this thing. It's called symmetry of logic, like how it works in the world and why is your version of it so different than the way that you do everything else. So if we go to a market and, and each vendor is yelling at you, fresh apples, fresh apples, oh, coconut water, coconut water. At a certain point, it's kind of annoying, and we've learned to tune people out who keep yelling at us. We know that, right? You can walk down a pretty busy market and ignore every single person. Somebody comes over to you, and they're very charismatic. My friend, my friend, uh, you, you, need, you need this. Oh, you look amazing. And you're like, no, no, don't talk to me. I don't want this. But you know what? You see a table off in the distance, and you're like, what is that? There's a crowd of people around that thing. You're like, I don't even know what this is. There's a lot of yeah. hype. And so you're compelled, and it's because we use social cues to let us know what to do. Everybody's ignoring these vendors. Everybody's focused on this other thing. And then you, you work your way around the crowd. You try to look over people's shoulder. And you see they have a pair of sneakers or something like that. And you're like, wow, I, I've never even heard of this. Why is everybody clamoring for it? This person's just sitting there patiently like looking around like, who should he offer the <laughs> shoe to? Okay, Now, you can ask yourself, in the, in the global marketplace, 
on LinkedIn, on social media, which one are you? Are you the one yelling at people? Buy my goods. Do this. This is amazing. We, we feel the insincerity in that. We know that all you want to do is sell us something. It has nothing to do with us. And then there's this other person who's been able to attract a crowd around them, mostly because they've done something remarkable. They've given the other people something to talk about, something that they're happy to share with a friend. You won't believe it. I was in the market. There was this guy who was selling these pair of shoes, and they were so amazing from a brand I've never heard before. And everybody was fighting for it. He only had 20 pairs to, to sell. And I know I wasn't able to buy it. I have to come to the market early tomorrow and see if I can get a pair. And you keep telling your friend, and your friend tells a friend, another friend. And so it kind of becomes really interesting at this point. So my challenge for every single person, I get this a lot. In my DMs, before we even have a conversation, before you even know me, you're pitching me some email marketing services. You're, you're, you're pitching me uh, appointment setting or social media management or video editing. And the worst thing that you can do is you can insult me first and then pitch me. And that happens too. Mm. Chris, we're big fans. We looked at your posts. They're not that good. We can help you. I'm like, shut up. Bye. <laughs> you probably can. I just can't even deal with you because you have no social skills. You, you go in and you try and insult me. That's not going to work. It's not going to work on me, right? So the way that we do this is if we present something that is of value to people, we sure. get that audience effect where people are like, whoa, hey, somebody just posted this thing. They just shared a piece. Of Did you watch this video? I'm going to share this with my cousin, Mary, Bob, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. Jake, and they're all going to watch this thing. And if you do such a good job at that, they'll ask you, how do I buy from you? What do you have for sale? I love the way your mind works. And I'll give you a real-life example of this. I was speaking in front of um, 100 people. It's a private mastermind. And I was teaching them about personal branding. I had no intentions of selling them anything because I was thinking these people are not really that interested in personal branding. This is not my usual creative community. But I was, I was mistaken. I started talking and I can see the engagement from everybody writing notes, looking at me like, oh, give me more, give me more. I was a little bit <laughs> yeah. surprised myself. So I finished... I left the stage, but I didn't want to leave at the end. I, I, I couldn't wait to finish at the beginning, and then I didn't want to leave at the end because the audience was so engaged, and I love that. So I get off stage, I go back to my table in this ballroom, and then a small group of people came over to me. It's like, hey, I love what you said. How do I, how, what, what do you have for sale? What, what can I buy from you? And I was a little thrown off. I'm like, um, nothing. I, I make creative products. I, I teach people, creative people, business skills. You clearly are all smart business people. You don't need anything from me. And so... I would rather be in that kind of position where people are clawing at you like, what do you have for sale? Tell me more. Is there a subscription? Is there a product? Is there a book? What can I buy from you? Because I just love what you're doing. Wouldn't you rather be in that position than chasing people down? Absolutely. That's the the best one to be in. And I think to that point, I mean, my approach with you was relatively similar right i sent you a message and we started talking and you sent me your you agreed to to be here i that's kind of the approach that i use so why is it that it works the one time and it doesn't work another time when you know when it's usually the kind of person that's whose work i've followed who's who's um who's at least whose ideas i get i have a sense of and I pitch it based on I pitch based on their ideas. Why is it then that the same formula works the one time and it, it, it's a hit and miss? Yeah. To to clarify, I just want to make sure we're talking about the same thing. Sure. You're saying I reach out to people I admire. Sometimes they respond, and sometimes they don't. And I agreed to be on your podcast. Yeah. You're like, why does it, why did it work, and why doesn't it work other times? Is that the question? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Very good. You you have to understand that I can only share it from my point of view. Exactly. Yeah, and so sure. I may be wired differently, but I can speak to my point of view and maybe you can mm-hmm. get some insight from that. Okay. Now, if normal people approach me and say, and, and they use certain language, hey, bro, first of all, that turns me <laughs> off immediately. Like, I'm not your bro. I don't even know you. Hey, bro, uh, it'd be rad if you were on my podcast. Um, we do X. And then I was just thinking, I never heard this person. I click on their profile. And it's like they have four followers and it's just like this is not going to help me with my mission of teaching a lot of people. So mm. I have a criteria and the criteria, I shouldn't even tell this because now people will exploit this, but I'm going to tell it to you anyways. <laughs> the criteria is like, do you offer an audience, a large audience? Do you, do you get 10,000 downloads or more? 
And if you don't, usually I just say no. Do you offer me a different kind of audience, a different market? Do you speak to a whole different community that I don't normally speak to? Maybe it could be business or it could be parts of the world that I've never been or, or have zero reach in. And then it becomes a little bit more compelling. But the third, probably the most important thing is, hey, do I vibe with you? And that's important to me. So I know this. Um, diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion is, a, is an important thing. So if we only see, especially here in America, if we only see older white men being guests, being hosted by other older white men, and nothing wrong with older white men, they seem to have a lot of knowledge, then people like you and me, we never see ourselves as the host or the guest. And that's problematic. So I grew up in America in a time in which diversity was not so, so big nor important. And, and so I never saw myself as a person who could do media because everybody that was on TV was usually white, African-American, and a few Latinos, but very few Asians doing this. And then many decades later, social media comes out. And you know who's excelling? People of color. Yeah. It's like if you give us the opportunity, we can actually be really interesting. And, and then what happens is some young Asian person, some person of color will reach out to me. It's like, oh, I just, I'm just so thrilled, not only because I get to learn from you, but I didn't know people like us could do things like this. And as cold as I may be, it's like, maybe I do need to do this. Maybe there's a reason why it was put on earth because I want to open the doors for others. And so sure. when you reach out to me, it's a combination of your approach, your language. I, I, I might have clicked on your profile and it's like, this guy looks like a decent person. He seems genuine. Why not? And if I, if I don't do this with you purely on numbers, then, then basically I repeat the sins of the past where only a certain group of people, they get to have all the success. It's like the 0.1% have all the money, the resources, and the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. What about the other 99.9% of the people? So we, we have to change that. And so I'm not saying that every person uh, who reaches out who has four followers, I'm going to do this. It's just the right timing, the combination, yeah, the person, yeah. and your approach. That's why. You have close encounters with creatives throughout your work. Can you share one or some of the most sort of pervasive mindsets that hinder growth among especially emerging and budding creatives and how they can overcome this? I, I heard Dr. Jordan Peterson talk about this. And he says the problem with creative people is we're divergent thinkers, where left-brainers are convergent. And the difference between convergent and divergent is convergent believes there's one way, there's one right way, and there's only the, the right way or the wrong way. Divergent thinkers, like, there's many ways to solve a problem. And that's the beautiful thing about a creative mind. But he says the thing that makes you so great also makes you terrible in business, and you often suffer because of this. And let me unpack that a little bit more. Creative people are the hardest people to coach. Because you tell them, here's how you do the thing that you want to do. They're like, well, there must be another way. I'm like, well, why am I wasting my time telling you my way? I don't even understand. And they don't even know that they're doing this. Creative people also think, well, um, I know that person's charging 5000 bucks to teach this thing, but I think I could just do it on my own. It'll take me four mm-hmm. years to do it, but I can do it on my own. And so there's this thing, and I've experienced this having taught at Art Center for over 10 years, that I try and tell people, here's how you do something. And they're like, well, that's for you. And it's like, what? Why are you in school? All you do is fight the instruction and you think that there's some other way to do it. And sometimes you get lucky and you figure it out. But most often they just suffer unnecessarily because they have this kind of kinesthetic approach. They need to get their hands on. They need to do it. They need to discover why so that they can come to the same conclusion that you just told them. But they need to figure it out kind of on their own. This is why most art instruction is set up like this. You get an assignment, it's a fairly, fairly loose brief, and then you just do it. And through the process of correcting and giving people feedback, they figure out what they're supposed to figure out or they don't at all. You cannot instruct them because they just have to go through the experience. Some people seek knowledge and rules. Some people will just throw paint at the wall and see what sticks. And so I think that is the thing that's hindering folks because they refuse to be coached. And when they pay for coaching, they don't follow the directions. And they keep thinking, well, it's just my time. I'll just keep working on it. And there's no sense of urgency in terms of them acquiring new skills. It is a very difficult thing to work with creative people. You've also, you, you, I mean, you've, you've also built a lot of experience, built a lot as well. And you're also constantly learning. What is it then about the things that, that you are receptive to learning now that makes them 
different out of everything else that you've learned because you know what there's a lot that you know and with people who know a lot we tend to assume there's very little for them to learn how do you kind of strike that balance of still learning when you've got so much knowledge yeah this is the the paradox the people who are experts know that they know nothing and they know there's so much to learn the people who are amateurs think they already know it all and don't think they want to learn anymore and so I look at it like I'm a master student. And I like that phrasing. I'm a master student. I achieve mastery by being the best student. I'm the best student because I want to master certain skills. And you, you can see all these books behind me. It's not a prop. It's not a wallpaper. It's not a green screen. They're books here for a reason because I love to learn with books. This is just my preferred style of learning. I don't prefer workshops. I don't want to like watch a video on it. I prefer just to read it for the most part. It's a visual kind of thing, and I can remember things. I can go at a certain pace, and I just really enjoy that. Analog. And the thing about it is, every time someone asks me a question, it's an opportunity for me to learn more. So if you ask me about pricing, and this was the case for a period of time, I had my own theories through my own lived experiences. So I could just speak about the 20-plus years working on hundreds of, of different projects with very difficult-to-please clients. So I could just reflect on that and just tell you what I did. But then I started reading books on it, books on pricing theory, the history of where our, our, the labor theory of value come in. And then I want to fill in the gaps. That could, intuitively, I know how to do this, but intellectually, what are the academics saying? I want to read on that. I'll give you another example. Um, a couple of years ago, people kept introducing me as a guru of marketing, as a master marketer. I don't even know what that means because I did not study marketing. I create content. It, it attracts people. I'm able to launch different products and I'm able to command a certain audience with decent engagement, but I don't know anything about marketing. And so I wound up reading six or seven books on marketing just because people accuse me of some, knowing something. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not sure I know that. And so I read the books. And so half the time I'm nodding like, oh, that's why I believe that because there's this whole science behind it. Hmm. Or they have theories and they have frameworks and they have names to describe things. There's all this research. And so when I read that, I can tell you, here's the idea, here's how I've applied it, and here's the science behind it, depending on how, how you like to learn. Or here's an exercise that you can apply. And so this is what I love to do. I, I read books on writing. I read books on marketing. I read books on sales, mindset, whatever is of interest to me at the time. And I almost always try to use... If you have an interesting question, that's an excuse for me to go learn something. Your work stands out quite a lot in, the, in this noisy social media and digital space. And you've managed to harness what I think is a signal over the noise that surrounds us, especially on my timeline. And um, I seek, I mean, I seek out your content, right? So, so there's that um, signal that I feel stands out from the noise of everything else. How would you describe or define your strategy and the creative process behind it? I have a question for you first. Sure. It's a rare opportunity for me, so I want to ask this question. What is it that you find compelling about my content or how I present myself such that you actually seek it out? And I love that you said that. So for me, there's, there's, a, there, there's a lot of how-to guides and there's very little lived experience. Um, and one of the, I think one of the, one of the authors or thinkers who come to mind, and I know you've spoken to him quite a lot as well, is Seth Godin, for instance, right? So, so with Seth Godin, he isn't someone who will post a lot on social media. So you actually have to go look. And if you missed his content for a week, you know that you must have missed, you might have missed that gem. And sometimes these gems invite people like me to talk to him, invite people like me to be featured on his content. So for me, it's it's also it's similar with you where i find that your content every post has a gem in it that is useful for me in my daily life so much so um that without revealing too much about what's coming i actually spoke to other people here in south africa who follow your work um and asked them what they would ask you and i have a question from one of them so so there's that there's this almost this community that forms behind 
certain thinkers behind certain people, and you are one of those people for me. Mm. Okay, very good. Thanks for sharing that. Okay, let's get back to your original question here. You asked me a question about strategy. I, I was writing another note down. So, I can you please ask that strat that that question again so that I'm prepped for it. So, in you know, in following your work, I've I. Re- I realize that you have found what is a signal over the noise of social media and and digital um, as a whole. How do you harness that that signal, and what's the strategy behind it? Would you define what the strategy is, as well as the creative process behind the strategy itself? I'm going to tell you this, and I, I don't talk about this as much, but I pursued design, visual design, because I didn't think of using my voice or I didn't see myself as much of a writer. And it's through this whole journey of learning how to communicate via social platforms, through writing, through speaking, that I discovered that I actually might not be that bad at this whole other thing. And I know when I tell friends, it's like, what? what you, you're a very natural writer. And it's, it's a delight for me to be able to discover this. And David C. Baker wrote this in his book, The Business of Expertise. He says that we gain clarity through articulation. And articulation could be you singing, dancing, writing, recording a video, doing a podcast, whatever it is. And and so the way that I like to write starts from a problem. And it's usually not a problem of my own design because every time I design my own problem, I find it's very difficult to write. Like, why is this interesting to anybody? It's not. So what I do is I, I read a lot of uh, social posts, either feedback to me or somewhere where people are having an argument or something. And it starts to charge me up emotionally. If you can imagine like one of those video games where you collect a certain power-ups and if you reach a certain level, you, grow, you glow with like a yellow color and you're like, release the superpower. Hmm. So for me, I'm siphoning off some negative energy or positive energy, but the emotions are where... I'm, I'm most compelled to create something I'm most creative. So somebody's arguing with somebody. Usually they're arguing with me most of the time. And they're like, this would never work. This guy knows nothing. You can tell clearly that this kid has never done any business before. And so they keep pumping me up. They keep pumping up. And then I reach that maximum 100% level and I'm ready to create. So then what I usually do is then I'll start either writing on a piece of paper or I'll just jump on the computer and just write down my notes. And I'll tell you why I do this. I'm collecting, collecting, processing, and here's the way I look at it. I'm not getting angry specifically about the person because I'm like, hey, dummy, don't you get it? What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to figure out like, how come the things that I said aren't communicating the way that it's intended? What did I do wrong? I'm kind of frustrated myself. Is it my face? Well, I can't change my face, so that'll be that. Is it the way I said it, the tonality? Or was there another angle here that they're bringing up that I didn't understand? And most likely, it's usually the last option. They're seeing it from their world, their lens. And so when I say something, it hits them totally differently than intended. That's an opportunity for me to dig back into my mind and say, Chris, find another way of saying this. Tell a story. Change your tone. Find another framework. Figure out something else. Is there an an analogy, a metaphor that you can use? And that winds up becoming the next piece of content. So I'm not doing it to win Bob over or Joe or Mary. I'm doing no. it to say like, you know, I wasn't that clear before. Let me try this other approach and maybe it works. So I usually write from that kind of place. And you know, sometimes I wake up, I, I'm in a mood. I don't mean like angry mood, but I just feel joy and love in my heart. And I, I write maybe cheesy things, corny things. Like I, I wrote this thing the, the other day on Twitter. I said, the fact that you exist proves that there's greatness in the world. Keep doing what you're doing until the world figures it out. And it's a little corny. It's like a Hallmark card, right? But I was just feeling my heart. So I've learned to listen to my heart, follow my instincts, and let the emotions guide my writing. Because unemotional writing is pretty boring. It's like you might as well write a yeah. technical paper. Yeah. So that's my strategy. I, I write based on that. Like I've like, You know how um, uh, Dr. Bruce Banner, the Incredible Hulk, says... You won't like me when I'm angry from the TV show. Yeah. Yes. It's like, you'll like me when I'm angry because when you read the content, you're like, I feel this. You know, and people respond like, say it louder for the people in the back. That's what they'll say. Like, say it again. Yeah. You know, clap, yeah. clap, you know, snap, snap. 
And it's like, yeah, okay, because you feel that I feel this. And I'm not just phoning it in. This is not a robot writing it. It's a human being with a certain perspective. And I'm going to share that. And that usually works. And I, I try not to do it to serve myself. I'm not trying to write it so that, oh, here's the pitch coming. You know, you, you read the piece of content and you're like, by the way, buy this product for $4.99. I try not to do that. And if I'm going to sell you something, I tell you up front, I'm going to sell you something so that you're like, this guy's going to keep it real with us. He's talking about a program or a workshop or something and we want to become interested. And the last thing I'll say to this is because there's a lot of people who write content to market. Nothing wrong with that. It's how yes. you do it that really mm-hmm. is bothering. So let's, let's go back to our friend Seth Godin to his book, Permission Marketing, which I did read. Yeah. yeah. So what I want to do is I want to say, hey, is anybody else there interested in this thing that I'm doing that I'm talking about? And if you are, just raise your hand and I'll make sure you get some information. But I'm not going to bother you otherwise. Hmm. So there's a very simple thing you do. You write yeah. something about what, what, what people would care about. And you say at the end, you say something like, if you want more information, comment with this word so I know you're interested and I'll send you some more information. And that's it. I don't pursue you. I don't harass you. I don't target you. That's it. It's like it's a voluntary thing. It's getting your permission. So in the permission marketing book, he says permission marketing is getting people to raise their hand to volunteer for a long-term marketing campaign of increasing value. I freaking love that definition, right? So I say, yeah, hey, would yeah. you like to be on our email list? Because I'd like to give you more value. So every time you interact with me on a post and you jump to a webinar, more value, and you roll in a course, more value, that you join a community, more value, each time if I do my job and give you value and respect your time, you're going to want to go deeper. And that's how we build a business. If you're enjoying The Lead Creative, please share this episode with your network and hit follow or subscribe. Enjoy the show. In fact, this also talks to the earlier question about how much should you deposit into that bank account before you ask for, for the sale. The, yeah. the providing um, as, much, uh, as much value as you can. So Chris, before this conversation, as I said earlier, I reached out to a couple of people in my network uh, who follow your work and I asked them what question they would ask you if, um, if they had the opportunity to. And I found this one to be interesting from um, a friend by the name of Mpomo Japilu. And so I'm going to read his question. Um, so he asks... From my personal journey and echoing the sentiments of many fellow creatives, it often feels that the more we build our businesses and creative responsibilities, the more we risk losing the initial passion and love that we had for creativity when we started. The challenges of entrepreneurs seem to stifle creativity. So Chris, how have you managed to not only maintain but also fuel your creativity and passion with the demands of business and building a, a successful career? I challenge the original question. And questions are built on assumptions and the assumptions sure. must be true for the question to be legitimate. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like the, the question was 100% legitimate and I'll tell you why. I like sure. the question, but I just want to clarify something for your friend, okay? Sure. We can see many examples of people building creative businesses where there's tons of joy and passion in them. So we have to say, what is the difference between those entrepreneurs, those creative people who are running thriving businesses, working with the best brands in the world, making tons of money, getting all the press, being invited to be the keynote speaker, and you? That's the real question. What is it that they're doing that you're not doing? Versus Mm. saying, the more I grow my business, the less I find joy in it, and I want to avoid the burnout all Right. That's one way of looking at it. So there's a book, it's called What's Your Problem? And it's a book on framing. If we ask the wrong question, we get the wrong answer. I think it's Maya Angelou who said something like, uh, there's no such thing as the right answer to the wrong question. So I can give you a great answer, but if it's the wrong question, I'm kind of screwed. Okay? All right, so let's get back to that. If we look at successful creative people who've launched a business, almost an enterprise, we're like, well, what is it about them? And I can think of several. I can think of the people at Pentagram, Paula Scher, Michael Beirut. I can think about people like um, Brian Collins from We Are Collins. They get to work with the best clients and collaborate with the most creative designers and illustrators in the world. And they get to fly around the world speaking and sharing their knowledge with the world. 
And we as citizens of that design community are just thrilled to be around them, to hear from them, to, to hear the wisdom come from their lips. It's just, it's enthralling or it's enthralling for us. It's thrilling. Okay. So what is it that we have to do? So when we run a business, we take our creative hat and we try to run a business mm-hmm. and we don't follow any of the rules of business. And this is why we get ourselves into a lot of trouble. We think we're in business so that we can do the work ourselves. Like if you think about any business, like Rob, uh, what is his name? Um, sh- um, sh- the guy who started Starbucks, something Schultz, right? Is he yeah, making the yeah. coffee in the back? Is Jeff Bezos packing up your box for Amazon? Is Elon Musk putting on the tires to your Tesla? No, because they find their role and their purpose to be much bigger than that. So we have to understand something. Another Seth Godin idea. You want to play the game for as long as possible because the person who can make the most amount of failure, the person who could fail the most wins. And that means that you have to be in business tomorrow in order to fail again, to have the opportunity to fail. And to do that, you need to build a long-term sustainable business, including work hours, mix of clients, and especially revenue. And I find joy in being able to build something like that, to be able to share that with other people. When I ran Blind My Surface Design Company, I did that for 20 plus years. In the 20 years in which we ran the business, there was only one year in which we were actually losing money in the red. There were a couple of years when we barely made any money, but we didn't lose money, okay? And that means that I need to be a good custodian of the business. But one of the pleasures, the great pleasures that I had in building the business and I take great pride in was the ability to assemble and attract a super creative team that I love to see every single day who did work that inspired me personally. Not work that I would do per se, but work that was like, wow, that was so interesting what you did there. I would not in a million years have taken that approach and I just really appreciate that. That I get to be the custodian for this. It's kind of like, like running an orphanage for creative orphans. You know, you're talented. You just need a little love and support, some kindness, and then we can see you flourish and become these beautiful human beings. And I like that. But if you define your business as, what can I do such that I get to do the work and keep my hands in it, you might get burnt out. You might have some frustration and anxiety. You might find yourself not very profitable and not able to fail again. You've lost the opportunity to have another shot at it. So I think we have to take our creative hat off put on our true entrepreneurial hat, not the creative hat that pretends to be an entrepreneur and understand why businesses exist. There's only two reasons. A business exists, according to Peter Drucker, to create a customer and then to make profit. If you can't create a customer and you can't make profit, you have no right to be in business. Yeah, that's a very that's a very insightful way of, of, of looking at it. Now, Chris, um, in closing, we have a tradition on the show, a recently started tradition, mm-hmm. um, where we ask our guests a question for someone they'd like to talk to. Um, and should it happen that we ever get that person on the show, we want to ask them your question or at least share your question. And really the question is, if you could ask one person or two people from any industry about their approach to, to work as well as creating, who would that person be and what would you ask them? I would like, I'd like to ask Elon Musk this question. <laughs> so you have your work cut out for you, okay? <laughs> the question I have for Elon is, do you think it's a wise business decision for you to be so vocal with some of your thoughts that seem to go against creating value for your shareholders? Because I liked Elon Musk a lot more before he started spreading all his crazy ideas. I mm-hmm. believed in his companies. And there's such a movement now that says, I love, like people wear or, or um, put stickers on their car. I love Tesla. I hate Elon. And they're buying it despite the fact that he's done as much as he can to hurt his own company, which I do not understand. So I'm, I'm, I wanted to know from him, what is the rationale? What is the reasoning behind him getting on Twitter? Because he keeps telling himself, and others, and he jokes about it. It's like, I keep shooting my foot off with my mouth. So maybe I should stop firing. But he just keeps doing it. I'm like, why are you doing this, Elon? I don't understand it. 
Uh, yeah, that's a very interesting question. And also, I think there was there, there was a mystery to Elon before he was so vocal, right? Like we knew that he was doing all of these things, but we didn't know a lot about the person um, yeah. or at least the, the, these kinds of ideas that he's spewing. Um, Chris, thank you so much for making the time. This was a hugely insightful uh, conversation. Um, and I'm sure that a lot of creatives will benefit from this. We appreciate your time. My pleasure. Is it Mongezi? How do you say your name? Mongezi. Mongezi. Well, yeah, I appreciate yeah. it. I now know why I agreed to to this podcast, by the way, because you're South African and I want to I want to be in Africa next year. I've never been. Um, the closest is like in Egypt. So it's like, okay, I want to go to Africa. I want to go to Nigeria, to Ghana, and to South Africa. So I hope that this message reaches a lot of people because I would love to go there. But of course, I can only go there if it makes business sense, if it's feasible for me. So absolutely, just put it out there. Thank you. Absolutely. And if and if you ever um, and if you do come, we'd love to yeah treat you to a coffee. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to The Lead Creative. Did you get one insight that's worth sharing from this episode? Please share it with your network or your friends. Pop me some of your ideas and innovative finds on Twitter, on at Mongesi. This podcast is available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also find me on mongesi.com.